with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. On today's show, we actually have a double shot of front burner, and we're going to close the show with a special treat, a new release from one of our local favorite uh, songwriters and singers, uh, Rick Stavely, coming up at the end of the program. But to start today's show, it is last Wednesday morning's front burner from CBC News. Hi, I'm Josh Block. Last week in a press briefing, the chief of the World Health Organization made an urgent plea to the global community. We need to prevent vaccine nationalism. And for this reason, WHO is working with governments and the private sector. The WHO is calling on countries around the world to join a pact by August 31st, asking higher income countries to commit to sharing potential vaccines with developing countries and with each other. Like an orchestra, we need all instruments to be played in harmony. One or two instruments playing by themselves just won't suffice when the world is waiting and listening intently. But many wealthier countries are already trying to secure enough vaccine supply for their own citizens. And there's a fear that if those supplies aren't shared equally, it could create major problems, not just for developing countries, but for the whole world. Today, CBC science and health reporter Emily Chung is here to talk about vaccine nationalism and why some health experts believe it could pose a threat to the global fight against COVID-19. This is FrontBurner. Hi, Emily. Great to have you back on the podcast. Hi, Josh. So first of all, what exactly is this concept of vaccine nationalism? Well, it's the idea that a lot of countries might be looking out for um, their own countries and their own populations in terms of getting access to a vaccine before they help any other countries or even allow any vaccines that they might have to leave the country. Governments are under pressure to secure supplies for their populations. And it's very possible that those countries will have a stake in getting access to those first doses. Yeah, we are only as strong as the weakest link. So if, if epidemics are going on anywhere in the world, that threatens the entire world and not just those regions. Right. And how could this vaccine nationalism get in the way of eradicating COVID-19 globally? Well, it's a global pandemic, and there are outbreaks in various places, and they're feeding new outbreaks in places that have had it under control, and this is how we can expect it to continue. So what the WHO says is nobody is safe until we're all safe. Hmm. Vaccine nationalism only helps the virus. Our only way out of this pandemic is together. So I want to understand how this vaccine nationalism works. I mean, for wealthier countries right now that are trying to secure vaccines for their own populations, how are they going about that? Well, there are three main ways they can do it. One is by providing funding for vaccine projects within their own countries, vaccines that are being developed in their own countries. For example, the U.S. has a program called Operation Warp Speed, where they're throwing billions of dollars at a bunch of vaccines being developed in the U.S. The Great National Project will bring together the best of American industry and innovation, the full resources of the United States government, 
and the excellence and precision of the United States military. We have the military totally involved. Another is to manufacture the vaccine in their own country and prevent it from being exported until everyone in the population, in their own population, has had access to the vaccine or that they're satisfied with the level of access in their own country. And this has happened in previous pandemics, which has delayed you know, the vaccine getting to other countries. The concern is that the vaccine supply and allocation in this pandemic will echo that of the H1N1 flu virus in 2009 and 10, when rich nations bought up the available supply of vaccines, leaving poor countries with none. They can also make deals to reserve or pre-order large numbers of doses, which is what a lot of countries have done, including Canada. So Canada recently announced a deal with Moderna and Pfizer, which are two companies in the U.S., to reserve large numbers of doses of the vaccine for Canadians. These agreements with Moderna and Pfizer are indicative of our aggressive approach to secure access to vaccine candidates now, so that Canadians are at the front of the line when a vaccine becomes available. Hmm. So it means that the wealthy countries, you know, including Canada, are spending huge amounts of money on these vaccine candidates, even without knowing if they're going to work yet. Yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> well, I want to ask you more about Canada, because a number of Canadian labs are developing vaccine candidates right now. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Canadians will have access to these vaccines because of what you've been talking about in terms of Canada's capacity to manufacture them. Right. And a lot of them are actually at very early stages right now. So Canada, yeah, really has a lot of uh, vaccine candidates under development, but only one of them has reached clinical trials that's Quebec City-based Medicago. The trial is a study of 180 healthy men and women between 18 and 55 years old. The company expects to see first results by October, but its CEO is cautioning that even if the vaccine works, it's not expected to be a cure-all. And their main manufacturing plant right now is in the U.S. So um, even they've been pretty upfront about the fact that you know, just because this is a vaccine being developed in Canada doesn't mean that Canadians will get first access. And they've said, you know, funny things happen at borders during events like pandemics. No one is going to have capacity to cover the world. So it's going to be a multifaceted solution. There are going to be multiple companies involved. There'll be multiple products involved. And I think that's the way it has to be in the early days in order to make sure that we have the coverage uh, that we need so, yeah, Canada's manufacturing capacity for vaccines right now is limited. We've heard reports recently, there was a report about the fact that that's even impeded vaccine research and vaccine development, because obviously you need to manufacture vaccine in order to be able to use it to test on people to begin with. Hmm. So, I mean, it sounds like that's just one way that Canada will be reliant on other countries cooperating with us to, to get a vaccine supply. But, but the WHO, it sounds like they're mainly focused on making sure developing countries will get vaccines. I mean, why is that? Why is their focus on developing nations? You know, developing countries, most of them don't have much in the way of development of vaccines, manufacturing of vaccines. They certainly don't have you know, millions of dollars to set aside to pre-order things. So they're probably not going to be the first to get access. But at the same time, they're some of the most vulnerable to this pandemic. Um, they don't have the resources 
to uh, control the pandemic in, in the ways that other countries have done. For example, you know, in Canada, we, we've had these lockdowns. You know, we have been giving assistance to people who've had to close their businesses and have lost their jobs and so on. Developing nations also have other issues. They also often have lots of people living in crowded conditions. So um, those are the places where the pandemic could really spread and continue to spread and, and take a huge toll. As a global community, we must work together to make sure that people around the world have access to vaccinations, especially the most vulnerable. COVID-19 has demonstrated that diseases know no borders. So it should come as no shock to anyone that the health of our citizens depends on the health of everyone, everywhere. That is the first segment of last Wednesday morning's Front Burner from CBC News here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. When after nine returns, it's uh, part two of that edition. Hello, I'm Carlos Núñez, the Galician Piper. Hey, this is Tim Brennan with the Dropkick Murphys. Hey, this is Dave King from Flag and Molly. Sean Smith from Lunasa. Karen Casey here. This is Ian Byrne from The Elders. Join me, Patricia Fraser, for the best Celtic music mix. Kelton a Twist, Canada's contemporary Celtic radio hour. Kelton a Twist with your host, Patricia Fraser. Tuesday nights from 9 to 10 following Fiddle Fest with AJ, right here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. The Indigenous Sport, Physical Activity and Recreation Council is in the process of developing a return to activity plan. The plan will align with the guidelines already developed by Via Sport and will adhere to the provincial health officer's orders and recommendations. For now, the council's sport and physical activity plan will focus on community participation and training rather than games and provincial competition. Updated information will be circulated when available. Meanwhile, visit iSpark.ca and follow iSpark on social media to stay up to date with their current list of programs. With increased traffic at city transfer stations and the Foothills Landfill, the Regional District of Fraser Fort George asks that you eliminate all unnecessary trips to the landfill and transfer stations. Wait before returning items which do not need to be disposed of immediately and maximize the use of curbside collection for waste and recyclables where available. When using the landfills and transfer stations, please follow social distancing protocols and stay at least six feet away from others. More information is available on the Regional District's website rdffg.bc.ca Forecast from Environment Canada for today mainly cloudy a 60% chance of showers this afternoon with wind from the south at 30k a high of 16 tonight cloudy wind continuing from the southwest a low of 11 on Tuesday cloudy with more southwest winds a 60% chance of showers in the afternoon and a high again of 16 Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George. You're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And here is the second segment of last Wednesday morning's Front Burner from CBC News. Well, so I know that there are a few big initiatives to try and distribute COVID-19 vaccines more fairly to try and counteract the, the, the forces of, of vaccine nationalism. And the biggest one is the World Health Organization's program. It's called the COVAX facility. Can you explain how does that work? Well, it's, it's basically a program where countries can sign on, two kinds of countries. So first of all, there are self-funding countries that pool a very large amount of money to invest in a huge number of candidates and to try and speed up their development. So any 
um, of the countries that invest in this will be able to get, if one of these is successful or multiple ones are successful, they're guaranteed enough vaccine for 20% of their populations. Whatever vaccine is proven to be safe and effective, all countries within the facility will be able to access them. Most importantly, it is the mechanism to enable a globally coordinated rollout. And there are also, in this program, beneficiary countries that are partnering with these, quote, self-funding countries. And those include low-income countries such as Afghanistan, Haiti, Ethiopia, and lower-middle-income countries such as India, Philippines, and the Ukraine. And mm -hmm. they are also guaranteed enough vaccine for 20% of their populations. That's it. I mean, 20% doesn't seem like a significant size of the population. First of all, who is the WHO suggesting should be prioritized in terms of the 20% of the population that would receive the vaccine? Well, right now they're saying frontline health care workers, which I think is pretty uh, obvious. Most countries mm -hmm. will be prioritizing that and also vulnerable populations. Initially, when there will be limited supply, it's important to provide the vaccine to those at highest risk around the world. This includes health workers as they are on the front lines in this pandemic. It also includes people over 65 years old. So uh, they specifically mention seniors, but it could depend also on the circumstances of your country. Like each country prioritizes groups that, you know, maybe places they've seen outbreaks. I mean, in, in Canada, for example, we've seen outbreaks in long-term care homes, in meatpacking plants, you know, among migrant farm workers. You might, these might be some groups that we, we might think about targeting. Is that a tough pitch to make to especially the higher income countries that, that they're only going to be providing enough vaccine for 20% of the population? Uh, I presume you know, all countries are interested in, in finding, you know, having enough vaccine supply to inoculate their entire population. I mean, what the WHO is promising right now is that you, you have to remember that all of these are vaccine candidates. Mm -hmm. None of them have been approved some of them are in still in fairly early stages of development. So at this point, it's hard to tell which ones are actually going to make it. And so it's a very risky time in development. But at the same time, we don't want any of these candidates to not go to development if they could be promising because they don't have enough funding. So this is what the WHO is promising. First of all, that they're going to support all the front-running candidates, or a lot of the front-running candidates, to make sure that they get developed as quickly as possible to the end. And, you know, countries are gambling. <laughs> like, when, mm. when they invest in any given one of these vaccine candidates, um, because we don't know which ones are going are gonna to make it, they could put all their money into several of that, and none of them could make it. Right. So, basically, by pooling our resources, we, the world would have a much better chance at developing a vaccine that's actually effective. That's right. One of the experts I talked to uh, likened it to diversifying your stock portfolio. Hmm. So what the WHO is saying is, you know, this is a much bigger portfolio of vaccines than any one country could possibly invest in. It's pooling risk for countries that want to invest. So any country that, in, that supports COVAX has a better chance of getting a successful vaccine candidate than going after a single one on their own. 
So am I correct also in saying that public health officials and scientists are saying, look, there might not be a single vaccine. There might be no silver bullet that's going to inoculate the, the whole population. We might need multiple vaccines to help different demographics. Uh, so this would give an opportunity to be invested in multiple potential vaccines, right? That's right. And uh, they're all different, not just in terms of effectiveness, but some of them might be more suitable for some circumstances than others. For example, um, some of them travel better, some of them are easier to store, some of them might be easier to manufacture, and some of them might require fewer doses. So um, these vaccines are all different, and you never know which one is going to work for your particular circumstance. Right. So the, the World Health Organization said on Monday that 172 countries are interested in participating in COVAX. Canada is actually one of them. But there's some major economies that haven't said they're going to participate. The U.S. is one, and there's reporting from Reuters that suggests the European Commission is urging its members not to take part either. What does that mean if we don't have buy-in from some of these other major developed nations? Well, the WHO is emphasizing that the participating countries actually do represent 70% of the world population. So that's that's quite a lot of the world, first of all. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, some of these countries that may not be participating directly in this program, at some level they are participating because some of their vaccines are the ones involved. And that may be also why some of them are reluctant to participate because they've already invested in a number of the vaccines that are in the portfolio. And maybe they have blown their vaccine budget and, and don't want to spend it again on the same vaccine. So is there a risk that without the United States or, or European countries buying into COVAX that it might not be as effective? Well, I mean, they're raising money from all kinds of places to try and be able to get as many doses as possible. So aside from the participating countries, they're also going after private donors and I think nonprofit organizations as well. So, I mean, either way, regardless of how successful it is, it's a, it's a program that looks like it has a potential to at least try to level the playing field, which is is more than we've had in in previous pandemics. I saw that that one criticism of COVAX is that although all participating countries are supposed to receive, as you mentioned, uh, you know, enough vaccines for 20% of their populations, I understand that that wealthier countries are still allowed to, to strike these separate deals with vaccine manufacturers. And in effect, they could scoop up the vaccine supply before the lower income nations could even receive their share. I mean, that is always a risk. The vaccines are constantly being manufactured. What that would do would be to delay when they would get it. That is one of the reasons why the European Union, um, when they're trying to to strike these vaccine deals, they're avoiding um vaccines that are manufactured in the U.S. because they think that could delay their supplies. But, but it's correct to say that, that, that there isn't a governing body that ultimately determines who will get what vaccine. I mean, it is a bit of the Wild West. I mean, it is, it is up to any nation, um, especially the wealthier nations, to decide. Uh, they have a lot of power to decide how much they want to keep for their own population versus how much they want to help others. 
Right, that's true. Um, but there are so many vaccine candidates under development that hopefully there will be enough of them that are successful and that they will have continuous manufacturing so that ultimately, in the end, everyone will be able to get access. Hmm. So this is the concept that WHO and partners are, uh, are advancing, are hoping that we can convince as many countries as possible to, to join this. And if it happens, then as a sign of global solidarity, it would also mean that perhaps for the first time we would have a situation where people, regardless of where they live, will get the vaccines as they become available at the same time. I mean, I feel like what we're talking about here are these two very different versions of how the world might look in a year or two years. You know, on the one hand, we have this this force of vaccine nationalism where countries really focus on protection of their own population. And then on the other hand is, is a world where there's much more international co- cooperation and collaboration. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, um, a world with more cooperation in theory, should get the pandemic under control faster because anytime it's out of control in, in some part of the world that poses a risk to other parts of the world, you have to remember that even when a vaccine becomes available to a given population in a given country, it's going to take time to vaccinate everybody. The vaccine doesn't work in everybody. There may be certain populations that can't be vaccinated. Hmm. And so you know, they'll remain at risk until it's eliminated in other parts of the world as well. Right. And I guess that's what the whole argument against vaccine nationalism boils down to, that this motivation to protect your own population might actually be putting them at greater risk, that unless you're thinking about how to stop this pandemic globally, you might not be protecting the citizens of your country. That's right. And that's one of the arguments that the WHO is making as well, that you know, this is an opportunity for um, countries that can afford it to to act as global citizens and get this global pandemic under control more quickly. Emily, thank you so much for explaining this to me. Oh, you're welcome, Josh. say goodbye. Yesterday after practice, Raptors point guard Fred Van Vliet spoke to the press. But instead of talking about playoff basketball, he spoke about Jacob Blake, a black man shot in the back by police in Wisconsin on Sunday. One reporter asked Van Vliet how he makes sense of the shooting, which was caught on video. Van Vliet turned the question back on the reporter and then made this statement. At some point, like, we are the ones always with the microphones in our face, we're the ones always who have to make a stand, but like, you know, we're the oppressed ones and the responsibility falls on us to make a change to stop being oppressed. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's that's what it boils down to. That's my point to ask you the question. Like, at what point does it, do we not have to speak about it anymore? Like, are we gonna hold everybody accountable or we're just gonna put the spotlight on black people or black athletes or entertainers and Say, what are you doing? What are you contributing to your community? What are you putting on the line? And then us, too, we got to take responsibility as well. Like, what are we willing to give up? Do we actually give a about what's going on? Or does it, is it just cool to wear, 
you know, Black Lives Matter on, on the backdrop or wear a t-shirt, like, what does that really mean? Is it really doing anything? So, um, I don't have the answers for you today, but I just, I think we're all, uh, I'll speak for myself. I'm in a different place today, you know, um, just emotionally speaking. On Tuesday, the family attorney for Jacob Blake revealed that he's paralyzed and that it would, quote, take a miracle for him to walk again. That's all for today. I'm Josh Block. Thanks for listening to Frontburner. And that is last Wednesday morning's Frontburner from CBC News. You can also catch uh, Frontburner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcast. You're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Registration is open for this year's Healthy Living Leader Training Sessions from the Indigenous Sport, Physical Activity and Recreation Council. The dates for the Northwest Northeast region are September 22nd and 23rd, with this year's sessions taking place online. Training is available to anyone who wants to deliver an Indigenous run walk or honor your health challenge. The Northwest Northeast region's Healthy Living Leader Training Sessions from iSpark.ca, September 22nd and 23rd, online. Registration deadline is Friday, September 11th. Two Rivers Gallery is heading into fall with new programs for adults. On September 29th, bring in a digital headshot of your pet and design a cookie cutter in the Maker Lab. Then on November 10th, it's back to the Maker Lab to design your own jewelry using the laser cutter to create and engrave it. You can also sign up for Try It Tuesdays with a different activity each session. All programs are designed with COVID-19 protocols in place. For more information on these and other programs, go to tworiversgallery.ca, where creativity flows in the Canada Games Plaza. Canada Post reminds you to keep your dog secure. Please do not open the door during deliveries or allow your dog to approach Canada Post employees while they are out in the community. This makes it difficult to adhere to physical distancing and increases the risk of dog bites. Already this year, Canada Post personnel have experienced more than two dozen incidents with dogs in Prince George. Check out and share the video on the Canada Post Facebook page to help spread this important message. The Prince George Bruce Kings are giving back with their buy one, gift one voucher promotion. Buy a $10 voucher for a Spruce Kings regular season game, and for each purchase, the Spruce Kings will gift a voucher to a local essential worker in thanks for their efforts. For full details on the buy one, gift one voucher promotion, visit sprucekings.bc.ca. The buy one, gift one voucher promotion from your Prince George Spruce Kings. Giving back to our local heroes. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And here is last Friday morning's front burner from CBC News. The Milwaukee Bucks, the number one team in the East, were scheduled to play Game 5 of their opening playoff series against the Orlando Magic on Wednesday afternoon. But the Bucks didn't come out of their locker room for pregame warm-ups. And when the buzzer went off, no one was on the court. Later in the day, they explained why. Despite the overwhelming plea for change, there has been no action. So our focus today cannot be on basketball. We are calling for justice for Jacob Blake and demand the officers be held accountable. The players were responding to the killing of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, shot seven times in the back by police. After the Bucks refused to play, other teams within the NBA followed. 
then athletes in other sports leagues, from the WNBA to the MLB and MLS, decided to do the same. In an afternoon meeting, the Brewers joined their fellow Milwaukee Pro franchise, postponing their game at Miller Park against the Cincinnati Reds. After speaking with representatives from teams playing tonight, as well as our WNBPA leadership, the consensus is to not play in tonight's slate of games and to kneel, lock arms, and raise fists during the national anthem. On Thursday, all playoff games were postponed, including one between the Toronto Raptors and the Boston Celtics. It's an unprecedented stance being taken in the sports world against systemic racism. Today, CBC Sports senior contributor Morgan Campbell on the significance of this move. I'm Josh Block. This is for Hello, Morgan. Hey, great to be here. I want to go back to Wednesday afternoon when the Bucks refused to leave their locker room to play in Game 5 against Orlando. This is the situation just moments ago. The clock hit 0.0 and the Bucks were not on floor, still in their locker room. Why do you think they decided to take that stance at that time? Because it's better than taking that stance any other time. Think about the facts. More generally, the 75% of NBA players who identify as black, most of these guys are American. Even the ones that aren't American uh, come to understand very quickly uh, the role race plays in America and the danger that can place them in, in terms of racial profiling, police brutality, and the, 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 the tentacles of systemic racism that can reach around your privilege. Right? This is before George Floyd. And then there's George Floyd and the death of George Floyd and the heightened scrutiny and the heightened sensitivity towards police brutality and racism in the very big space where those two issues overlap. Um, And against those two backdrops, we have Jacob Blake. And so that shooting, again, it's it's a triggering event to a lot of NBA players because of everything I just laid out. Mm -hmm. But it's even more sensitive for the Bucks and for the Raptors because of proximity, because the the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, Milwaukee is about 40 minutes north of of Kenosha, and the Milwaukee Bucks have a player on their team, Sterling Brown, who a couple years back was racially profiled and assaulted by police in Milwaukee. What started as one officer engaging with a black man over a routine parking violation turns violent in an instant. Milwaukee Bucks player Sterling Brown tased on the ground, surrounded by police officers, all in a matter of minutes. The incident caught on police body cam. And for the Toronto Raptors, who, before all this, before the Bucks uh, walked out of their game, the Raptors were discussing not playing. They were having these discussions with the Celtics, and we got to remember the Raptors are just one week removed from having seen video published of the team president, Masai Ujiri, getting shoved not once but twice uh, unprovoked by a police officer in the stadium in Oakland the moment after the Raptors won the NBA titles. So all of these uh, uh, circumstances converge right before this playoff game. And so the Bucks said the best way to, to show our displeasure with everything that's happening and not happening in terms of progress and also to, to call attention the steps the Bucks felt need to be, needed to be made. Uh, they felt this was the best place and best time to withhold their services. They, they, they were in that locker room for three hours, and when they emerged, they had a press conference. The starting guards, George Hill and Sterling Brown, gave a statement. 
calling for justice for Jacob Blake. They also talked about how, as players, they're expected to give maximum effort, but uh, you know, law enforcement and lawmakers have to do the same. When we take the court and represent Milwaukee and Wisconsin, we are expected to play at a high level, give maximum effort, and hold each other accountable. We hold ourselves to that standard, and in this moment, we are demanding the same from lawmakers and law enforcement. What struck you about the statement they made and, and seeing the whole team standing there behind George Hill and Sterling Brown? One, the solidarity was compelling, not just the solidarity amongst team members, but again, across teams, across the league, and then across leagues. Because one of the things that came out was that the Bucks hadn't consulted all the other teams about not playing. They just didn't come out, and then the Magic got the picture, and then quickly word spread, and then the other team scheduled to play that night said, you know what, this is a good idea. Let's let our voices be heard on this issue by not playing. And second is that, and, and I, I personally am not uh, a protest shamer, and protest shame is one of these things that's happening and building momentum right now as we speak. What do you mean, but what's protest shame? Something that white people and black people do to black people when black people protest, when black people find a way to protest racism, and whichever way you protest racism, there's always a white person to tell you you did it the wrong way, hmm. right? So you get out in the street and protest, they tell you you should be silent. You take a knee in protest, they tell you taking a knee is inappropriate, it's disrespectful. Uh, you get out and riot, and they say rioting is, is unconstitutional. President Trump and I will always support the right of Americans to peaceful protest. But rioting and looting is not peaceful protest. Tearing down statues is not free speech. And those who do so will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. You go get you a gun, like the Black Panthers, and they say you're a terrorist, even though you have Second Amendment rights to do this. And no matter what way black people choose to protest, there's always going to be a white person telling you it's the wrong way to do it. And one of the common ways of protest shaming is to tell people they don't have a plan. They don't, you're, you're just protesting, you don't have a plan to solve the problem. It is my contention, and I could be wrong, that uh, Colin Kaepernick does not understand the big picture of his country. I'll be very interested to see these so-called policy suggestions that he comes out with. As if the person on the receiving end of the problem is also supposed to figure out how to rewire the brain of the person that's causing the problem. But the Bucks, to the extent they could have had a plan, they spent those three hours laying out concrete steps what they wanted to see and what they wanted to see legislators in Wisconsin and prosecutors' offices in Wisconsin do. And so to anyone who wanted to criticize them about protesting without a plan, protesting without concrete steps or outcomes they wanted, they had that base covered. Hmm. I feel, you know, we saw in the lead up to that moment where the Bucks refused to play, the players and coaches in the bubble really reacting with this in a very raw way to the shooting of Jacob Blake. And uh, in many press conferences, I mean, there was the press conference with Doc Rivers, the coach of the Los Angeles Clippers, where he was fighting back tears. All you hear is Donald Trump and all of them talking about fear. We're the ones getting killed. We're the ones getting shot. Uh, we're the ones that we're denied to live in certain communities. Um, We've been hung, we've been shot, and all you do is keep hearing a fear. What did you make of, of the, the level of emotion and, and the vulnerability that we were seeing um, all week? <laughs> it's funny because you know, like white people ask me, what, what do I make of seeing black men vulnerable? 
um, only because what gets presented and what's what gets projected so many times, so often about black men, especially athletes, is invulnerability. Hmm. And this idea that these guys are not human. They all they are is basketball players, essentially robots programmed to go out and perform perfectly and entertain. And when they show some humanity, yeah, it's raw, it's compelling, and it takes people off guard because they haven't seen that before. Whereas like for me, surprise like to your listeners that don't know I am black. And not just black, but I grew up with a black family, African-American family on both sides of the border. And so I, it, 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 it's, uh, it's funny to, to me when people ask me how I react to seeing, you know, very normal human dimensions of a black person. But with Doc Rivers, um, he said something that resonated with me because, again, I'm a dual citizen. My, my parents uh, are from the United States, um, as are my grandparents. And one of the reasons they came to Canada is that they had to ask themselves the same question Doc Rivers asked, which was, how long can you expect us to love this country that doesn't love us back? It's amazing why we keep loving this country and this country does not love us back. In a press conference, uh, the Raptors point guard Fred Van Vliet responded to the Jacob Blake shooting too, and he sounded exhausted and frustrated about the lack of change around issues of police brutality. But, you know, he also turned a question back around on the reporter and asked, you know, why is it that black people and black athletes especially are the ones who have to speak out about these injustices? You know, coming down here, making a choice to play, um, you know, we're supposed to not be in vain, but it's just starting to feel like everything we're doing is, is just going through the motions and Nothing's really changing. I mean, it seems like he was, was really grappling in real time about what, you know, on the one hand, having this platform, this opportunity to speak out, and then on the other hand, being really frustrated that, that speaking out in this way was maybe, was not doing enough, that change was not happening. When I heard that comment, what I felt was a profound sense of sadness for Fred Van Vliet, that he would take this burden on himself. And it's unfortunate, again, that especially white members of the mainstream media, help place this burden on the shoulders of players who don't necessarily deserve it. So it's completely unfair, unreasonable to expect a group of basketball players protesting or even uh, sitting out some games to dismantle, by those two actions, dismantle generations of systemic racism in a summer or a half a week. But this is the expectation now that we in the mainstream media have placed on these guys. And now you have Fred Van Vliet, you know, feeling bad behind that. And, this, and he shouldn't. Because it's, it's not, he, he does everything he can. It's not his fault that this cop shot Jacob Blake. It's not any player's fault for not having done enough. But again, this is also related to um, protesting. And this burden is unique to black athletes in the United States. No one else is, no one's asking white guys to give up more. Stop working, give up your job. If you really care about this, why are you playing basketball? Go join the protest full time. If, really, if, if you really care about this, invest your whole fortune in uh, insert cause here. No one's asking anyone else to do that. Hmm. But somehow it's this expectation that black athletes should not only use their platform, whatever that term means now these days, hmm. but also be prepared to give up that platform uh, to go fight in the trenches. And if somehow you're not willing to do that, then you're not doing enough. And even if you do that and white people still do racist stuff, somehow that's your fault. Hmm. It's insane. But these are the questions we're over here asking Black athletes. Well, not me, y'all.
That is part one of Friday morning's front burner from CBC News. We'll have segment number two in a moment here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. You're listening to After Nine. The United Way of Northern B.C. has completed the final round of funding through Canada's Emergency Community Support Fund. The total allocated was $858,000 to 44 agencies and 55 programs across Northern B.C. The United Way of Northern B.C. continues to strive to fill resource gaps created by the COVID-19 crisis with their Maximum Impact Fund. To help out, visit unitedwaynbc.ca slash donate. More information is available at unitedwaynbc.ca. The United Way of Northern B.C. Give. Volunteer. Act. The Prince George Community Foundation has awarded funding to five social purpose organizations throughout Northern B.C. as part of the Government of Canada's Investment Readiness Program. The Dawson Creek Society for Community Living, EcoTrust Canada, the Potato House Project, the Valemount Learning Centre, and Seed the North, Inc. were granted funds. The second round of IRP funding will start on September 8th. For information about eligibility and other details, visit the Prince George Community Foundation website at pgcf.ca or through Community foundations.ca. The Canadian Centre for Occupational Health and Safety has some tips for people operating a restaurant during the current pandemic. Among the suggestions, promote home delivery, pre-ordering or curbside pickup. Use signs and markings to control the flow of people in the restaurant. Limit the number of customers allowed in at one time and provide a waiting area outside with markers designated safe physical distancing and remove large condiment containers from tables, replacing them with single-use items. For more tips on pandemic-related health and safety, go to ccohs.ca. Forecast from Environment Canada for today mainly cloudy, a 60% chance of showers this afternoon with wind to the south of 30K, a high of 16. Tonight cloudy, wind continuing from the southwest to low of 11. On Tuesday cloudy with more southwest winds, a 60% chance of showers in the afternoon and a high again of 16. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And now the second half of Friday morning's front burner from CBC News. I know that players from all the teams held a meeting at a hotel ballroom on Wednesday night. And there are reports of a really heated discussion about whether players could do more to support the Black Lives Matter movement from inside the bubble in Orlando or whether it was better to be outside. And that debate really goes back to when the NBA was considering resuming the season in the midst of the protests over George Floyd's death. What was the argument back then, back in June, that each side was making about resuming the season? There's always this tension between uh, playing and not playing, you know, investing more time and more energy in protests and whatever constitutes affecting change. Kyrie Irving reportedly breaking with his former championship teammate, LeBron James. According to The Athletic, the Brooklyn Nets star put it bluntly, I don't support going to Orlando, adding, I'm willing to give up everything I have. Or going back to playing basketball. Again, black athletes are the only ones really placed in this position to have to choose. The thing that makes the mainstream listen to you is the fact that you're really good at basketball and you have the spotlight on you. And now the message is, now that you have the spotlight, leave the spotlight and go uh, do something else to prove to me, right? To prove, not to me, but prove to some white person that you're really committed to ending racism. And so the other uh, kind of false conflict this sets up, and I make this point over and over again, is that any prominent black American you can name, entertainer, athlete, rose to the top of their industry mastered their craft against the backdrop of some different but similar civil rights struggle. Hmm. 
right? So we don't say Duke Ellington took attention away from A. Philip Randolph, right? And that A. Philip Randolph would be more famous if Duke Ellington was not here writing songs. We don't say Smokey Robinson and the Temptations took momentum away from Martin Luther King, that the, that the March on Washington would have been even bigger if not for Motown. Um, and even Muhammad Ali, because this is this is the guy that every black athlete gets compared to. The thing that people forget about Muhammad Ali is that he did not leave boxing. He he lost his license. So Muhammad Ali did not say, I'm going to retire from boxing so I can fight against the government and not have to go to Vietnam. He was happy to keep fighting. And so unless someone comes in and tells LeBron James, well, you've lost your basketball license. You can't play anymore. <laughs> We're not talking about the same thing. And none of these guys should be expected to give up something when you compare them to Muhammad Ali, that Muhammad Ali himself did not willingly give up. He had his titles taken from him. He had his license taken from him. He had his livelihood taken from him. He did not give these things up. My titles don't let me go shoot my brother. Uh, some darker people, uh, some poor hungry people in the mud for big powerful America and shoot them for what? How can I shoot them poor people? I'm just take me to jail. In this case, though, there is an interesting, you know, the, the players did come back um, to, into the bubble with the agreement that there would be more integration of the symbols and the slogans of the Black Lives Matter movement. There would be more opportunity to talk about the movement and uh, its message. But now it, it does seem that the players have have taken the activism to the next level by saying we're not going to work. We're withholding our work and, and doing so with a great degree of solidarity. And it feels like we've reached a, a different level of that activism, or just at least a different tactic. What do you make of that move? In some ways, it was inevitable, because what we've seen even recently, just, when, just looking at recent history in the sports industry, is black athletes doing two things. One, prioritizing their blackness, their identities as black people, over their identities as football player, basketball player, student, etc., and then also recognizing that what they do has value and that they can leverage that value um, by withdrawing their labor uh, to create situations that are more favorable to them. So even five years ago at the University of Missouri, when there was a bunch of racist incidents happening on campus and the president wasn't doing enough about it, so what the black players on the football team said was, okay, well, unless you guys fire the president, we're not playing next week. Because if we don't play next week, you can't send uh, just the white guys out on the field because you'll lose. Hmm. And you might not even be able to fulfill the full team without the black guys. <laughs> and so we are not playing unless you guys fire this president. And guess what? For months, it simmered largely unnoticed outside the university community. But now the whole country is awakening to the racial tensions and growing revolt that boiled over today at the University of Missouri. A hunger strike, a threatened walkout by members of the football team, and protests from students and faculty alike leading up to today's abrupt resignation of the university's president. Accused by black student groups of indifference to a series of reported racist acts on the overwhelmingly white campus. They fired the president. You know why? Because they needed those black players to get out there and play that football game and keep the money coming in. And the black players recognized that. And, and what was special about that event was that it was black players using their power and their privilege as athletes to help like rank and file black students, regular like civilian black students that weren't athletes and weren't privy to those privileges. So 
we have very recent examples of black athletes understanding that it's their talent that makes all of these enterprises valuable. However many billions of dollars the NBA brings in, that happens because the talent level is so high, and the talent level is so high because of 75% of the players in that league who are black. Because if you take all of them out of the league, you're still going to have your Luka Doncic's, you're still going to have your Nikola Jokic's, but everybody else is nowhere near as good. You're not going to find another LeBron James. You're not going to find another Giannis. And so those guys understand that their presence makes this whole enterprise valuable. And so their absence creates a lot of big problems that people will be willing to solve. To see pro athletes do that right now is a big step. And what do you think is at stake for these players when they refuse to play like this? Well, what, well, is there anything that you feel strongly enough about that someone could ask you and you really think about it to put off a year, two years of work to go do this thing? And there's no guarantee you know, of coming back to work. So I said that to say there's a lot at stake. Anytime you as a player you know, engage in a wildcat strike, but mm-hmm. that should illustrate how seriously people take these issues. Thursday afternoon, uh, the NBA released a statement saying that it hopes to resume the playoffs on the weekend. But even so, I know it's difficult to speculate, but what do you think the longer-term impacts of this protest is going to be going forward? That's a good question. Like, I don't know what happens from here, but what we have seen is evidence that the highest-profile performers in that sport are willing to put that sport on hold for racial justice, for the fight against police brutality systemic racism and again that big area where they overlap and so we're a long way from Colin Kaepernick sitting out the anthem we're a long way from a few players kneeling and incurring the wrath of coaches and team owners for having done that coaches and team owners now understand that this is where people a lot of people's minds and hearts have been for a long time and it's just taken everyone else this long uh, to catch up what I'm interested to see is how the leagues react and how the teams react, and how players in other leagues that don't have as many black players react. Because again, if the issue is only black people making it known that we hate being the targets of systemic racism, we've been making that known from the time we arrived on these shores. And so the thing that has to change is whether white people are ready to set aside the privilege that comes with not being on the receiving end of systemic racism. Morgan, thank you so much for your insight into this. No problem. Before I let you go, some related news. Prosecutors have charged 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse in the killing of two protesters and the wounding of a third in Kenosha, Wisconsin. The protesters were taking part in demonstrations against police brutality and the killing of Jacob Blake. Rittenhouse is charged on six criminal counts, including first-degree intentional homicide, the most severe crime in the state. He could face a mandatory life sentence if he's convicted of that. That's all for today. Front Burner is brought to you by CBC News and CBC Podcasts. The show was produced by the incredible Front Burner team of Mark Apollonio, Imogen Burchard, Shannon Higgins, 
Allie James and Derek Vanderwijk. Mandy Sham does our sound design with help from Mac Cameron. Our music is by Joseph Shabison of Boombox Sound. The executive producer of Frontburner this week was Elaine Chow. I'm Josh Block. Thanks for listening. On 93.1 CFIS-FM, that was Friday morning's Frontburner from CBC News. You can also catch Frontburner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. When After Nine returns, the latest from Rick Stavely. The Canadian Centre for Occupational Health and Safety has some tips for people operating a community centre during the current pandemic. Among the suggestions, post signs reminding people about physical distancing, hand hygiene and respiratory etiquette. If possible, use separate entry and exit doors to control pedestrian flow. Arrange seating to maintain physical distancing. Keep attendance lists to help in contact tracing if necessary and review activities offered to see if it is safe to offer them. For more tips on pandemic-related health and safety, go to ccohs.ca. The perspectives of Canadians matter. Help us shed light on discrimination. Take five minutes to participate in Statistics Canada's Experiences of Discrimination Crowdsource Survey. Visit statcan.gc.ca slash participate and click the Participate Now button. The results will benefit people and communities across Canada. During the ongoing crisis, the City of Prince George Service Centre continues to be open from 8.30 to 5, Monday through Friday, with the first hour and a half reserved for seniors and those who may need a little extra time. Residents are encouraged to visit princegeorge.ca forward slash COVID-19 to learn about ways to access city services or make payments remotely. The page also includes helpful resources plus activities and initiatives being undertaken to address the pandemic. All the city information you need at princegeorge.ca. To ease congestion at regional district recycle depots and transfer stations, all sites have returned to summer hours. As well, the Return It Centre has reopened. The regional district reminds everyone to observe physical distancing measures at all sites, avoid unnecessary trips, and expect long lineups, especially on weekends. For full details on operating schedules for all regional district solid waste facilities, as well as COVID-19-related policies and procedures, please visit rdffg.bc.ca. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Make sure you tune in tomorrow for After 9 as Alan Wishard will be the host and his guests will include Tim Bennett and Anita Richardson from School District 57, Curtis Mays from the Spirit of the North Healthcare Foundation, and artist Betty Kovacic. To finish off today's program, as promised, here's the latest from Rick Stavely. This is Hag on the jukebox. I'm a throwback, I go way, way back. This old cowboy hat, yeah, it's where it's at. I don't roll with the flow, I swim upstream. If you know what I mean, they call me old school. I don't toe no good woman's line. I got a wild haired side in a pocket full of greenbacks. I pick my choice straight, straight down the middle with some hardcore steel and a honky tonk fiddle. Cold beer, cold and cowgirl smoking hot. Jones junkie like my will and willing Ride on the money, my whiskey on the rocks And hang 
son of a gun. You won't catch me sipping coke and rum. I like the hard stuff and I don't like it watered down. I take my George Strait straight down the middle with some hardcore steel and a honky tonk fill. Cold beer, cold and cowgirl smoking hard. Jones junkie like my will and a willing Ride on the money, my whiskey on the rocks And hang on the jukebox I'll take my choice straight, straight down the middle With some hardcore Talk fiddle, cold beer, cold and cowgirls smoking hot. I'm a redneck George Jones junkie, like my Willie and a Willie. Ride on the money, my whiskey on the rocks, and hang on the jukebox. After 9 is a daily presentation of CFIS-FM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Reg Fair, and Nathan Gita, with guest producer Neil Godbu of the Prince George Citizen. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. This is 93.1 CFIS-FM in Prince George, proudly supported by community groups like the BC Old Time Fiddlers.